anyway, I thought I would add that for your encouragement to know that I believe God is really here with us. Uh, I believe that Passover this year was significant uh, in the sense that God blessed us with a great deal of growth in numbers. And there were at least four, uh, I would have to say, miraculous interventions by God in the healing matter uh, during and around that Passover month that uh, probably there are a couple of people here who would not have been here today had he not intervened. So uh, I believe we did receive some former and latter rains during the Passover season. Maybe not exactly as I had imagined in my mind, but I cannot deny God's intervention and God's blessing. And even, I think, in our understanding of uh, through the Song of Songs put together with a lot of other scriptures, I think I came to understand and passed along to you more of the intimacy that God wants between He, or Christ, and His wife, and us as brothers, as sons, and friends of God, of deity, and how close He wants us to become with Him. Now, I know it's hard for us to imagine those things, it's hard for us to imagine eternal life. It's hard for us to grasp that there is truly a God of all power who has always existed. Those are things that we always wonder about and try to grasp and understand. And Paul even called it a great mystery that we would become God someday because it's not easy for us with our human, mundane, physical minds to grasp the spiritual and to grasp the relationship that will be between Christ and his immortal, eternal, spirit-filled bride is hard for us to grasp based upon our feeble attempts to make our physical marriages here a type of Christ and his bride. Because we're not Christ, and we're not immortal and eternal yet, and we don't have the mind of God yet in the fullest sense by any means. So it's hard for us to grasp that understanding, but it's something that he wants us to meditate on and try to uh, reach up to as much as we can in this physical life to understand what that will be like, because he makes it a direct type, and we saw that. He's, Paul said there in uh, Ephesians 5.32, this is a mystery, but I speak of Christ in the church, and he had just described the relationship between husband and wife. So that is a goal and a purpose that is out there before us, even though we can't fully grasp it, we're to be working toward it. And we should be working toward having as much of that kind of relationship with the Father and the Son now as we possibly can. Uh, even as John had a closer relationship with Christ as a man than the other disciples did. Uh, there was one there that he, because of the type of personality John was, Christ was drawn to him as a human being more than he was to the others. Now, John may not have had some of the leadership qualities that needed to be in the early New Testament church. Uh, Peter had more of those, and I think Paul had more of those. But at the same time, John was more tender and loving and kind and gentle uh, 
and may have had more love than the others did. And that's what we were talking about, is the kind of love that needs to be between us and our father and his son, our brother, and husband-to-be. So I wanted to talk about that a little more because today I want to get into something that is uh, perhaps an addendum or a sequel to some of what I talked about regarding the timing of all these events that are to occur. And I believe that this year's Passover was somewhat uh, a forerunner of what is to be because of some of the things that did happen and how they fit the timeline. Because we have Pentecost coming up in a couple of weeks, and uh, what it may portend is yet to be seen, but it's only a couple of weeks away, so we don't have too long to wait. Uh, most of the church has already kept Pentecost uh, a month before we. And uh, then there's some divergence of opinion about whether it should be counted from the the Sabbath before the Days of Unleavened Bread when you have a Saturday night Passover or the Sabbath after the Days of Unleavened Bread. And I went through that very carefully uh, some years ago and gave a sermon about it. And it is to me very, very clear that the wave sheaf has to be offered during the Days of Passover uh, because the 7,000-year plan of God has to cover the, the sacrifice of Christ as the wave sheaf for all people, has to cover all people that have lived, including the first thousand years uh, of mankind. So, uh, his, he has to be able to be waved on that first thousand years, or that first day of the days of unleavened bread, so when you have a Saturday night Passover, you start with the weekly Sabbath just prior to the Passover service, and that way the wave sheaf falls on the first day of unleavened bread. If you count it from the Sabbath, which would be a, a, a weekly Sabbath, which would also be the last day of the seventh day of unleavened bread, then the wave sheaf falls outside the days of unleavened bread and represents no one. Christ's sacrifice in vain represents no one. Uh, so, it has to represent those in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh thousand years of the plan of God. I think that should be obvious uh, testimony. The technicalities of explaining that I will not get into, but they can be shown. Uh, the people in the great white throne judgment don't need that wave sheaf offered for them uh, as it's outside the 7,000 years. But all those people who come up in the great white throne judgment lived during the 7,000 years. So they have already been covered by the sacrifice of Christ when they come up in the great white throne judgment uh, during those seven days, 7,000 years. A day is as a year, and a day is as a thousand years. Second Peter 3.18 and Numbers 14.34. So... Uh, I think enough said about that. If there are any individuals who have questions, I'll, I'll go through it with you in more detail. But the symbolism, I think, is so very clear uh, that we have to comprehend that. Now, we have quoted, I'm sure, in the church many, many times over the decades, 
The God does nothing except he warns through his servants, the prophets. So anything that is slated to happen from now until Christ returns and after has to be covered in the scriptures. The prophets have to cover it because God made that statement and he doesn't lie. Anything that happens, God has to warn through his servants, the prophets. And we have quite a few different books of the prophets here in the Bible, and there's quite a bit of prophecy even in the New Testament, not just the Old Testament prophets. And many of the quotes in the New Testament are from Old Testament prophets. So anything that is important that will happen has to have been covered ahead of time, and we have to be able at some point to see it. Now, God even said of the book of Daniel that it would be sealed up until the end time. It would not be able to be understood until the end time. The others could be to some degree, at least, but not Daniel. And Daniel holds the keys, and I think it is being shown to some degree now, maybe not all of it yet, but some of what Daniel has locked up is now being shown. And we'll see that a little bit today. Now, I went through, uh, in sermons recently, uh, a dissertation about the 430 years of Ezekiel 4, about the 70 years of Jeremiah 25 and 29, and about the prophecy of 65 years before Ephraim would be destroyed in Isaiah 7, showing that those are all coming together right now. And in fact, some of them ended, two of them at least, I think, last summer. Uh, hope that thing shuts up. Maybe I can turn it off. I don't usually have it here. We'll power off. That'll fix it. Anyway, uh, I went through those to show that it appears the 430 years ended last summer. The 70 years of Jeremiah and Daniel and Zechariah 1 probably ended, ended <coughs> last September. So you say, well, then why are things still going on? And I'll show you some reasons for that here in just a moment. But if there is any timing in the Bible of these end-time events, if it's in there anywhere, it has to be in these things that we have been discussing. Because there's no place else that it discusses it in the same way. I know it says there in Matthew 24 that this generation that God called under Herbert Armstrong would not pass away until all these things have happened. And that we would see increasing in, an increase in earthquakes and wars and all of those things that we've talked about for years here at the end time. So a little bit of the timing is there. And he said, look, when you see the leaves on the trees, you know the time is near. Therefore, we know just by looking from what Christ said there that the time is near. Uh, wars and rumors of wars are going on constantly now, and earthquakes are increasing rapidly, and volcanic activity, and uh, all persecution of anyone who would call himself a Christian. Uh, the whole rest of the world is after Christians to destroy them. The whole Islamic world and the whole communist world and elements of the U.S., government as well. So all those things Christ talked about are here. Now, let's go back 
to begin with to Amos, because I think something happened here that was a, if you will, a, a shot across the bow, a final warning that God gives. Now in chapter 7, <clears throat> he says in verse 2, By whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small? And God says, well, I'll, I'll relent and I'll save Jacob. He calls him a worm back in uh, Isaiah 42, I think it is. Then said I, in verse 5, O Lord God, cease, I beseech you, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. And Ezekiel even asked, are you going to wipe us all out? And God says, no, I'm not going to wipe all of you out, but it may seem like it. And here we are, decimated, small, and yet then we got about a 60-65% growth jump at Passover. So God says He will deal with it, and He will hold up a plumb line and measure Israel again. But He's talking about the church here when He says Jacob is small. Spiritual Israel is very small. Uh, Christ even said, Fear not little flock. It would not be a big flock, but a small one. Uh, then it talks about the destruction of physical Jacob in Israel, which is much bigger. But the church has already been decimated, you see, to where it is now very small. Now the nation is about to be decimated so that it becomes very small. It will be a very small number of Israelites who go on into the millennium. So it's a prophecy that is enacted first in the church and then will be in uh, physical Israel. Anyway, down in chapter 8, uh, we've, we went over this, and we went over it, in fact, last fall. Uh, the Eternal showed me a basket of summer fruit, Amos says. And he says, what do you see? And he said, a basket of summer. Then he said, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. So the setting of this prophecy is late summer when the fruits are coming uh, to, to ripen and be harvested. And he says at that point, I'm done passing over their sins. There's going to be some action taken. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, says the eternal God. Now, speaking of the church, which is the temple of God, our bodies are the temple of God. It is a physical temple about to be built. But the temple here uh, is referring, and I'll show you that in a moment, first of all to the church. It then will apply to the nation, but first to the church, again, as all these prophecies do. I'm not going to pass by the church anymore. The songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day. So there is more trouble coming on the remnant of what's left of worldwide and its daughters and splinters. There's more trouble coming on it. In fact, it shows very clearly that uh, 90% of the church will go into the tribulation and about 30% will be saved out of it. So the trouble with the church is not over by any means, even though it's decimated at this point. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. So that's spiritually dead. Uh, we have many people who have dried up and died spiritually. In fact, I think we've come to see the worldwide church of God was the Sardis area, and it indeed has died. And only a few names are left in Sardis. So many dead bodies are around, even of the church, much less the nation. But the, the dead bodies of the nation will start falling very rapidly soon now. 
Hear this, O you that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn in the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat and uh, buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes? And that equates to Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 and Malachi 1, where the ministry was misusing and abusing funds in worldwide, and that was part of the reason for its demise, frankly, spiritually speaking. So it fits that way as well. The Eternal has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. They will be punished for it, in other words. Then he says, Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwells therein? And it shall rise up wholly as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Mitzrayim or Egypt. Now what we are about to read... Well, let's go ahead and read it, then I'll go back. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Eternal, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. We had a total eclipse that went across the middle of the nation at noon, last end of last summer. That was immediately followed by terrible floods, in southern Texas, and in Puerto Rico and Florida, and on up the coast. Talks about a flood here. So it was, I think, the beginning of some of these sorrows. It was, if I I could use the term, a shot across the bow, that that eclipse may have occurred at some point back in history, and I think I read that it does every so many hundreds of thousands of years or whatever. But this is in the context of the end-time prophecies when this happened, and specifically of this one right here. So we had darkness at noon, and it was a clear day. You could see the whole thing if you were in the right place. And I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Now, the feasts of the church are being turned into mourning. In fact, Worldwide did away with God's feasts. Uh, and the splinters have hung on to them, but they too are going to go away because conditions will be such that people cannot even keep them in the nation very shortly. And also, those of physical Jacob, like Christmas and Easter and all the worldly holidays, will also cease because you don't keep those when you're in captivity. So what he's saying here applies to both. And now let's see that he's talking spiritually here as well, very clearly in verse 11. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Eternal. So it's a spiritual famine, not just a physical. And notice, they shall wander from sea to sea, from coast to coast, And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the eternal. Oh, wait a minute. I skipped something that's important here. From sea to sea, from the north, even to the east. Sea to sea, in the north, and in the east. It doesn't say in the southwest. There is where the word of God is going to come from. That's where God set Herbert Armstrong up to preach from, was the American Southwest, from Pasadena, a city of merchants, as we see in Ezekiel 16. And this last 
iteration of the Word of God going out will only be found in the American Southwest in the area of Zion and the original Jerusalem and Promised Land. That's the only place it will be. You, you can go from sea to sea to the north and down along the whole east. You won't find it. Out here is the only place it will come from. And I, I believe that's where God put us so we could be part of this. They won't find it anywhere else. Why? Because it's going to be snuffed out. It won't be around. Nobody will be preaching anymore. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst, and they that swear by the sin of Samaria, worldwide church of God is okay, we weren't sinning, we're the Philadelphians, everything's all right, is what they say. I don't want to dwell on this anymore, but this sets the table for what has come since and what is about to occur. Now, I'll briefly go through again the 430 years of uh, Ezekiel 4, because we always wondered, the whole church did, what in the world is this him laying on his side for Israel 390 days and 40 days for Judah? And it says right there in the context that each day is as a year. So each day he laid on his side represented a year in the life of, of uh, Israel and Judah. Now we know that America is Ephraim today and that many Jews are in America and the tribes of northwest or mostly of western Europe are the other Israelite tribes and then a few scattered around in other places. But <coughs> he equates the 430 years in Ezekiel to the destruction of Israel. If you go on down and read it uh, in the ensuing verses through chapter 7, it never changes context, but he says there in chapter 5 that Israel will have one-third die of famine and pestilence, one-third die of the sword, and one-third going to captivity and a sword after them. It says the same thing in another place in Jeremiah, I think it is. Same words. So, he says at the end of the 430 years, this destruction is going to come. Now, when they came out of Mitzrayim, or Egypt, they went in on what would become Passover day, because he says they would come out 430 years later on the self-same day in Exodus 12. So, he made a specific prophecy there that it would be exactly 430 years, okay? And then they marched out, they were released, and told to leave on Passover night, 430 years later. Now, it isn't written exactly the same way in Ezekiel. I, I won't take the time to go back there because I don't have time in one sermon. We just went through it recently. But if you go on down in the context and get to chapter 7, and nothing has changed, it keeps talking about the destruction, and it says there, not the self-same day, but he says it is come, it is come about 10, 12 times, and says it is near, in another word, and it says it won't be as the echoing of the mountains anymore, like it goes on and on and on and on. But it's here, it's near. Now, near is not in the self-same day, right? Near is close. So he says it will come close after the 430 years. Well, America was first established 400 
31 now years ago, uh, with the Roanoke Colony. They do believe that that colony survived. And they used 1607, the day the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, as the first colony in America that survived. But that will not work with the prophecies because it says there will be old men to see the temple built that saw the first temple under worldwide in its glory. And also that this generation under Herbert Armstrong would not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. And all the old men that were called back when worldwide was at its spiritual pinnacle back in the 50s and 60s are dead or dying, getting real close. So another 20 years to Plymouth Rock, we'd all be dead, the whole generation. So I think God dramatically and decidedly counted from uh, Roanoke. And the 430 years were up last July, if you count from the time that colony was established, July 22nd, 1587. 430 years later was July 22nd of last year. So, nothing was supposed to happen on that self-same day, but it would be near, it has come, it has come, it has come. It's not going to be long ways off now, it's near. I want us to get that point. Then we go to uh, the 70 years of Jeremiah 25 and 29. And Jeremiah said there that he had been preaching, it was his 23rd year of preaching, okay, this message that he was giving. The message was, overall, that they would go into captivity, and they would be into captivity for 70 years, and that they were to go ahead and build houses and have families and do everything because it was going to be a long captivity. A false prophet, Hananiah, tried to say it's only going to be a very short captivity, and then he died. Jeremiah was right. It was a 70-year captivity. Now, for what it's worth, this is the 23rd year that we're in right now since this message about the church and about ultimately all Israel came in 1996 and 97. 96 is when it started. This is the 23rd year. And Jeremiah said that after 23 years, or during his 23rd year, the 70 years would be up. Now, I never understood, and the church never did, those scriptures in there, in Jeremiah, just before the captivity occurred, where he was saying it would be 70 years, build houses and plant things, it's going to be a while. And I always wondered, how can that equate to the end time, that they were doing all that? Well, when I began to understand the timing of Herbert Armstrong's work, exactly 1,900 years after Christ proclaimed the Jubilee in 27 A.D., 26 A.D., uh, Herbert Armstrong was shown the truth. Seventy years after that, 1996, we were shown these truths and the prophecies. And everything that has happened to us since then, any major event, equates to exactly 70 years from when it happened in Worldwide. I showed you the chart. Every one of them, 70 years later. So, I turned that off. Anyway, uh, lost my thought there. It was after 70 years. So, what 70 years 
when did the 70 years of Jeremiah begin here in the end time, is the question. Now, Herbert Armstrong recognized when he raised up little churches in Oregon that as soon as he left, they fell apart and everybody forgot everything he had said. So nothing was happening up there. So he said, I've got to go build a college and God sent him to Pasadena, a land of traffic in the L.A. area. And there he established a college in 1947. What was its purpose? Its purpose was to train ministers to go out and build church houses or congregations, and it would last 70 years. So he began training ministers. They started going out. They built congregations all over the nation and all over the world ultimately, right? And when did worldwide meet its demise? 70 years or uh, 70 years later. 2017. Or, I mean, no, no, wait a minute. Uh, it met its demise 70 years after Herbert Armstrong was called in 1996 is when Worldwide, I think, basically finished dying. But from the time the college started in 1947, 70 years later was 2017. So, I believe that the type is there that from 1947, <clears throat> we would have a long captivity, build churches, grow, and spread around the earth. 70 years later, uh, a new work would begin. 2017. The destruction would come because he said very clearly that the destruction of this nation would occur after 70 years in captivity. So from the time we began to build houses and to expand and to grow and go through that long 70 years until the 70 years ended, uh, September 47 was when the college started, it would have been last fall. So the prophecies of, how, of what would be fit and the timing fits because it equates to the end of the 430 that the 70 also ends. And they have to be at the same time because it says that the 430... Soon after it would come the destruction of the nation, and right after the 70 was over would come the destruction of the nation, and the end of the Babylonian captivity when we would be delivered from it. So those both ended last, late last summer, and we had that eclipse, which was a warning to the church and to the world that these things are upon us. Now, I want to take it to a different area, and let's go to, first of all, Daniel 9, because here is a very important key to understanding all this. You remember Daniel was taken into captivity when the Jews were taken to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, and he had been there throughout the entire captivity. And it was at the end of it that he came to understand something that he had not understood before. Jeremiah had written prior to this 70-year captivity, and as it was beginning to occur, and even somewhat after it had started, was when Jeremiah was writing. And he said, I've been preaching this now into my 23rd year, that the end of this is coming, and then the destruction of Babylon 
and the beginning of God's work to continue in a different way. So in Daniel 9, verse 1, we see this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes. Now you'll remember Ahasuerus from the book of Esther. He was the king of Persia at that time and the one that Esther married. And shortly after she married the king Ahasuerus, God delivered the Jews from the hands of their enemies. They were delivered. Now, people have said, that book shouldn't be in the Bible because it doesn't mention God. I think it's important to understand that they fasted and they prayed to God. It doesn't say to God, but who else would they pray to and fast to? Obviously, God was there, but He was working behind the scenes. He had not become visible yet. Now, do you have any inclination that Christ and the Father have been working behind the scenes to deliver God's people here at the end because He says He's going to? And yet people don't understand? And I'll tell you this, that some of what I'm telling you today from these prophecies and the timing that they show cannot be understood unless you understand the history of Worldwide Church of God and even of this work today. I tried to explain it to one of my sons. I tried to explain it to two of them, actually. And since they no longer look to Worldwide as having been important, there was no way I could explain it because the events that happened to Worldwide to them mean nothing. Therefore, People who understand Worldwide Church of God and what happened to it and what has to come out of it are the only ones that can understand the timing of this. God is working behind the scenes to show a few people what He is about to do. Through His servants, the prophets, and Herbert Armstrong could be counted as one of those, I do believe. Because he is the one who opened up at least a remedial understanding of who Israel was and of the prophecies to come. He didn't understand all this end time stuff because he wasn't going to be around and he didn't need to. But, let's go on here. This is the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So the king who took over, who destroyed Babylon... And the Persian who took over the Babylonian Empire was the son of Ahasuerus and Esther of the book of Esther. Very clear here. So, the king here was the son of God's servant Esther, the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So, he had taken over Babylon. So, from this we glean that the 70 years was over. Babylon had been destroyed. Uh, the king here, Darius, or Cyrus, uh, they get the two mixed up, Cyrus and Darius, even the commentators. But this was the Cyrus, who was the son of Ahasuerus and Esther, called Darius here, but he's called Cyrus in other places. So the names are interchangeable, but it was the son of Ahasuerus and, and Esther. So in the first year of his reign... 
I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years that Jeremiah was talking about in the accomplishment of 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So here was a prophecy that there would be a 70-year captivity. At the end of it, Jerusalem, Israel, would be uh, freed. And Babylon would be destroyed. So Daniel had seen the destruction of Babylon and Darius the Mede come in. And now he was, for the first time now, understanding what he had read in Jeremiah. He didn't get it before. He says, oh, Jeremiah says when that 70 year ends, then God is going to deliver His people and they were going to do a work. And he immediately started into a very heart-rending prayer to God that things would go well because he realized Israel was not what it ought to be. Just as we understand today, the spiritual Israel isn't what it ought to be. Nehemiah prayed the same kind of prayer in Nehemiah 1, if we have time to get to it. Because he saw it was time to build the wall of Jerusalem, and he knew they were inadequate and uh, to do the job. So he understood the 70 years. Now, that equates... Let's go back to Ezra 1, first of all, and let's see how this is all tied together. Because this is important and it helps us understand some things that I didn't cover before that I think have become pretty clear. Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, same Darius we just read about, uh, that the word of the Eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah. So the same reference here that Daniel used to what Jeremiah had said, he says applies equally uh, in the book of Esther. So Daniel said it was the it was King Ahasuerus, Esther's husband, or, or uh, Esther's son, Ahasuerus' son. So first year. Now that's when Daniel understood, okay? And he probably told Cyrus the king because they were very close that there was a prophecy about him. Anyway, it was understood from Jeremiah, Cyrus says. And it must have been Daniel that pointed that out because I doubt if Cyrus read Jeremiah very often as a Gentile king. Uh, that the Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation saying that the Eternal God of heaven has given me the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. You can read this again in Isaiah 44 and 45 as well as an end-time prophecy. And then he asked for volunteers to go do it. Okay, Daniel talks of the first year of Cyrus. Ezra talks of the first year of Cyrus. Uh, We're going to see a tie to the second year of Cyrus here in a moment. Let me see if I'm leaving out anything I want to cover here before I go there. Uh, Maybe Zechariah 1, so that we are sure to tie it with today. I mean, it should be obvious because Daniel was sealed up to the end and what is being revealed there about Jeremiah and Ezra in the book of Nehemiah Daniel says was valid for the end time prophecies. But here in Zechariah, uh, he talks about the 70 years up in verse 12, first chapter. 
the angel of the eternal said, O Lord, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have had indignation these threescore and ten years? So here's the seventy years mentioned. Uh, and it's mentioned in the context of Haggai and Zechariah, which Zechariah 4.14, tied with uh, Revelation 11.3, shows that the two, two anointed ones of Revelation 3 are Zerubbabel, and Joshua of Haggai and Zechariah. So this is talking of the end time and the 70 years at the end time when the leadership and the remnant of the church is about to be called, okay? End of 70 years when God will begin to show blessings on the church and the destruction of the Babylonian system which we have around us would both occur. And the Eternal answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words, because this is about the church. And he said to me, Cry you, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. Now we know again from Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, that Zion and Jerusalem are code words for the church in the end time as well as the nation. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease... For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. So God says, I wasn't really that upset until the heathen came in. Now that could equate to the Tkachas who came in, and God, God was somewhat displeased with Herbert Armstrong and us, okay? And then the heathen came in, and he became very displeased and spewed us all out. Now this prophecy might also include the work that follows that. Because God has had heathen come in among us here who have rebelled against the things of God. And I think He's sorely displeased with them and they're going to go away pretty soon because there are several prophecies that indicate they're going into the tribulation and they will all die there. We won't get into that. We don't have time. But let's see here that the 70 years applies to the church to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and the remnant of the church. That's key to understanding that the 70 years is now over. The 430 years is now over. But he didn't say it will happen the day that those are over. In fact, the 70 and the 430 ended about a month apart. So it couldn't have been the self-same day for both. And it doesn't even indicate in Scripture that exactly at the end of 70 these things will happen. That's important. Because we've already seen in Daniel 9, the first year of Cyrus. We've seen in Ezra, the first year of Cyrus, that this was understood and that things began to happen that would lead to the events that we're about to talk about. Okay? Now let's go to the book of Haggai. I have always felt that the plethora of dates given in Haggai and Zechariah must have some meaning for the end time. There are more dates given in the book of Haggai than in any other book of the Bible or any other prophecy anywhere in Scripture. Now, Ezekiel mentions a certain year of a certain king, and throughout history, I mean, even through Kings and Chronicles, it'll mention uh, that certain things happened in the 
18th year of whatever king or whatever it might be. So those things are mentioned as historical things. But here we have all these dates mentioned with specific events involved that will happen here in the end to the end-time church. And I wondered through the years since 1996 when Haggai and the story here came clear, how do these apply and in what way? Now, we always focused in on the ninth month, 24th day, because it says on that day, I will bless you. So we always have looked at 924 ever since 1996, before you were even here, wondering when the 924 that will bring blessings would occur. So I've always marked it on my calendar every year, not having a clue if that was the year or not, but hoping, okay? We may now have knowledge that shows us which year. Let's look at it. Because we've already seen the first year of Cyrus tied to the 70 years ending. We've seen the beginning of the preparations to build the temple in Ezra as in the first year of Cyrus. So that dates the prophecies of the temple building to that year of Cyrus. And we see in the end-time prophecies, once the work, this end-time after Herbert Armstrong, who was typified by Hezekiah, ends in Isaiah 39, a voice crying in the wilderness in Isaiah 40 starts. <coughs> and there is an end-time Cyrus who will produce the gold and the silver to put in the temple there in Isaiah 44 and 45 and show the world who God is. We're already familiar with all of those. So Cyrus is tied in. Okay? The original and another one at the end. Whom I heard say, Jerusalem and the temple have to be built right here in Iron County, Utah. I nearly dropped my jaw when I heard that. Uh, and that was before I understood very much of this. I mean, of, of Jerusalem and all that. Now, let's go to Haggai and pick it up here because this is the meat of the, the new, I think, understanding that God gave. Now, I hesitated to even discuss this today. And the reason I did was because there are there's at least one thing in here that I don't like. And I didn't want to cover it because I don't like it. Now, if you have an insight to these things, there can always be the ego side where you want to say, well, I told you about this before it happened, therefore wasn't I smart. No, it isn't me, and it isn't, uh, not that I'm smart. Uh, God has shown by His servants the prophets, not me. The prophets wrote the book. All we have come to do is understand what the prophets said. So that doesn't make me a prophet. It, it hopefully means that I understand what the prophets said. Okay? And ego aside, I wasn't going to do this because I didn't like something I'm going to tell you about in a little bit. And I don't know whether it fully applies or not exactly, but and I was going to go to something else this, this afternoon, but the scripture came into my mind where God told Ezekiel, and then he told John in the end of Revelation 10, eat what I give you. Whatever I give you, eat it, do it, preach it. Oh, okay. When that came to my mind, I said, well, I guess I better cover this whether I like it or not. Okay? So with that background, let's look at Haggai. 
in the second year of Darius or Cyrus, son of Ahasuerus again, as Daniel explains to us. In the first day of the month came the word of the Eternal by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel <coughs> and Joshua the high priest. So, it wasn't the self-same day. It wasn't even the same year that Daniel understood Jeremiah. It wasn't the same year that Cyrus began to say, we need to build a temple. God gave me a commission. Do I have volunteers to do it? But that took some time to get everybody volunteered, to get everybody gathered up, to leave the Euphrates area and travel all the way over here. Uh, Ezra said it took four months. You would, you would have to do a lot of camping and overnighting to get from the Euphrates to the present day of Israel and take four months to do it. It isn't very far. I think I figured it out one time. It was only one or two miles a day, and you can walk 20 miles a day pretty easily. But to come across the ocean uh, is about right for four months to get here by sailing ship uh, and so on. And that's what it took him, Ezra said. <coughs> so, this is the second year of Darius, or Cyrus, that Haggai wrote this message. Not the first year, but preparations had to be done. The 70 years was over. The king was saying, it's time to go build. Let's get ready. Let's travel there. Let's, let it, let's get it done. So that would have put it on into the second year. I don't know what time of the year that came to Daniel in Cyrus's first year, but sometime in his first year. So four months just to travel would put it that much further on. And to get everything ready to start building, it would obviously have been in the second year. Okay? So that's where Haggai starts with the end-time prophecies of the two witnesses and the gathering. Uh, before we go further, I want to throw one more thing in here before I forget it. Uh, keep your finger here. We're coming right back. Let's go back to Acts. Um, Acts. I mean, uh, Joel 2 for a moment. Now, we went through this in detail before uh, Passover, and I certainly think that we did receive blessings during the Passover uh, season. But there's one part of this where he says, after the first month, down in uh, verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Old men dream dreams. Young men see visions. Servants and the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit and show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the eternal. So it's before the day of the Lord. Now, Peter, quite clearly in Acts 2, referred to Joel in this passage when he saw the tongues of fire, the gift of tongues being given, and then after, and they began to preach in other tongues and languages. And then immediately after, first day, second day, you had 3,000 and 5,000 people converted. A, a gathering to the early New Testament church began at Pentecost, right? Now, this wasn't the final fulfillment in Acts 2. Peter said this is what Joel talked about. And it was a fulfillment of Joel 2, no doubt. Because the things that are described here 
did happen, at least in part. But the day of the Lord didn't follow shortly thereafter, did it? It's 2,000 years later now, isn't it? And everything that is said here didn't happen, but he did pour out his Spirit, and he gave his Spirit to the church and to the apostles on Pentecost of of A.D. 31, when the church actually began. So, the reason I come back to this is I want us to, to closely consider the last part of it. Verse 32, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Eternal shall be delivered. Now, people began to call on Christ's name back there in Acts 2, and they were converted and delivered from the world around them in that sense spiritually. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. He tells us in Micah 4 to leave the city, come dwell in the wilderness, and there you shall be delivered. Here he says, Jerusalem and Mount Zion, which we know are right close here, there you'll be delivered, as the Eternal has said in Haggai and other places, <coughs> and in the remnant whom the Eternal shall call. So here we're talking about Joel, which was partially fulfilled in Acts 2, and will be fully fulfilled here at the end time at the final gathering of the church. And he equates it to Pentecost. Now, I had thought over the years that, that maybe the gathering would begin right after Passover because it says there in Isaiah 52 that he will turn again, turn things around, turn his face back, and then it has the Passover in there in Isaiah 53. And then it says, lengthen the cords of your tents in 54. So I thought, well, maybe right after Passover then, uh, that deliverance and that gathering will come. But here it seems to indicate after Pentecost that he'll begin to do the gathering. Now, that is quite soon after Passover, isn't it? Fifty days later. So, it doesn't say they'll come immediately in Isaiah 54, which I assumed. I thought maybe some things would happen at Passover, signs and wonders that would cause that. But the signs and wonders of Acts 2 came at Pentecost, not at Passover. Now, Christ died then and was resurrected, so it, it was a monumental event. But it was not yet something that started to occur with signs and wonders in the church until Acts. The, the background was all laid in Passover. But the actual beginning of the church and the giving of the Spirit was at Pentecost. And here he says the remnant that I will gather, and it's in the context of Pentecost. Now, the reason we know it's Pentecost is because uh, Peter said it was. So it has to refer to Pentecost here at the end again as well. So the gathering may begin shortly after Pentecost because events may occur that would cause that to happen. Now let's go back to, to Haggai. and pick up the story here. How am I doing for time? I better hurry. So, this isn't the first year. That's when Jeremiah, I mean, uh, Daniel and Ezra and the king understood. 
And then preparations had to come. So now we're into the second year of Darius, and a message comes to these who are a type of the two witnesses. And it says, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, saying, This people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, I referred to the whole church over time, saying that the Jews will build a physical temple if there is one. All we're concerned with is a spiritual temple. But everybody in the church understood there had to be a spiritual temple built, right? But not a physical. Now, what about all these people if God begins the gathering? Let's say it is this Pentecost, and it could be. I'm not saying that it will, but I think that there's a good possibility of that because of the timing of these other things, and it being the 23rd year since all this was revealed, and also the end of the 70 and the 430. And I didn't even get to the 65 years that puts a limiting factor on when it must be done by, from Isaiah 7, where he says 65 years, within 65 years, Ephraim will be destroyed. And I believe that started in 1954 with the Bilderbergers, uh, plot against this nation to destroy it and usher in the Satan's new world order. So that is a limiting factor on the backside. And that first meeting was on May 29th through 31st of 1954 and is the only uh, politically important date that I can find in those years either side of 1954. And it equates to other things. So anyway... That means that from 1954, within 65 years, this nation would be destroyed, if that's the correct date. That would put us to May 19 through 31 of 2019. 65 years is up then from the Bilderberger founding. And he says that Christ would come and we would be delivered of him and be uh, involved with him there in Isaiah 7 as another sign and that the destruction of the nation would come and the Assyrian would be here and destroy us before Isaiah's child could say daddy or mommy which takes about 11 months that means the outside limit if this be true for the destruction of this nation would be about 11 months after Pentecost uh, or, or of May 29th and 31st if if Isaiah 7 is referring to Pentecost. Uh, 11 months later would put it in uh, April. 12 would put it end of May. So, I think the nation must be gone by next April. Now, let's see how that ties in here with Haggai. Here this came in the first day of the sixth month. Pentecost this year comes in the third month. Uh, which is uh, June, July, August, September is the sixth month. So let's, let's translate this as we go through here as if this is the year that this is talking about. Because we've seen clearly the 70 and the 430 are at an end and that these things have to happen shortly thereafter. So if this is the second year after the 430, the 70 ended, Let's say September. All right, what's the message uh, in September? What about people coming as a remnant that God stirs to come build the temple? 
they will not have access to the information that you now understand. And they might come here and still be thinking their old worldwide way of it's only a spiritual temple. And therefore, it will have to be explained to them because if you say, we, got, we need to go build a physical temple, oh, no, no, it's all spiritual. That's what we've always been taught. So, come September, if they've arrived by then, we would have to tell them, oh, no, we have to build a physical as well as a spiritual temple. And they say, well, the time's not here for that. We're almost at the end. How can we do that? So, that was the message for the first day of the sixth month. I've got my calendar here. That would be the, uh, the 10th of September, equated to today. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time to dwell in your nice homes and this house lie waste? Now for thus says the Eternal, consider your ways. Uh, you've sown and you haven't reaped and you've got pockets with holes in them, inflation, the economy is going bad, and so on. He says, <coughs> Go up into the mountains and bring wood and build a house. And then it says down here in verse 12, I thought there was another date in there. Maybe not. That was the 6-1 message part of it. Uh, it says in verse 12, Then the two and the remnant who came obeyed the voice of the Eternal, their God. Now, that indicates that by 6-1 or by September 10th, the gathering would have occurred if this is the year indeed. So, it says, Then they obeyed, and they feared before God. And God then tells them that He is with them, and that He will help them and stir them up to come and build the temple with the remnant of the people. And then... It says afterward in verse 15 that this was in the 24th day of the sixth month. There's two or three places where it's the 24th day of the month in the Haggai and Zechariah. So, they're first told, you've got to build a temple on the first of the sixth month. On the 24th, it says that they had gotten themselves together and were ready to begin the building. 24 days later. Now, there's another gap. In the seventh month, in the 21st day of the month, that would be the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which this year would be October 30th. <coughs> uh, Haggai spoke again, and he said to tell Zerubbabel and, and everyone, Who is left that saw worldwide in its first glory? Some old men. So there will be old men, and that's also mentioned, I think, in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah. <coughs> so it says, Be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you. And I am with you the way I was when you came out of Egypt. I'll be there on hand. I'll take care of you, okay? And he says, It's a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. So what is occurring here is just before the shaking of the day of the Lord. It's just a little while before that. So that's an end-time prophecy, right? Undeniably. The desire of the nation shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. 
And then he says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the eternal. Well, I know somebody that says when he finds the silver and the gold, he thinks it's his. But God says, no, it's mine. Now, that's in Isaiah 44 and 45, where he says, Cyrus will provide the gold and the silver to build the temple. And here, it's right in the context of temple building. And then he says, the glory will be greater than what came before it. Worldwide is now dead, and this will have replaced it as what Philadelphia, I mean, uh, Sardis, the few names left there, and those who repent of Laodicea will form Philadelphia. Philadelphia isn't formed yet till the remnant come. Because it says they will be protected from the tribulation. Sardis is not. Laodicea is not. But Philadelphia will. And the remnant that comes is the only one that will be protected. So they have to be Philadelphia. It just hasn't arrived yet. If it's this year, it'll start soon after Pentecost. We'll see. At least we're speculating here, and we know that we don't have to wait long to find out if this is the year. Anyway, then comes the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, which it says a little later here will come blessing. And he says, Ask the priests if the clean can untouch the unclean. And no, they can't, because anything that touches the unclean becomes unclean. And he tells us there in Isaiah 52, to be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. So we have to quit touching this unclean world around us and unclean things. And he says, this nation and this people before me has been touching the unclean. He says, this has got to stop. <coughs> and he says, consider from the time before a stone was laid in the temple of the eternal, when there was drought and famine, uh, spiritual famine we read about in uh, Amos 8, I smote you with blasting and mildew and all those things there in Joel 1 and 2 about how God destroyed the church. He says, Then consider now from this day and forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Has any blessing come? No. He says, Then from this day will I bless you. And then he says, tells Zerubbabel that it's very soon now that I will shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the kingdoms and so on. So it is very much an end time prophecy. So we've seen that it needs to be told to people it's time to build a temple. Then the gathering to do it. By the 24th they were ready to do it. Then by 721, it talks about how it's beginning to come together and the glory will be greater than that which is preceded and we have to get rid of the unclean in order to be qualified. Then he says, from 924, I'll bless you. Well, 924 this year is December 31st. And then the festival of Feast of Dedication is January 1st through 8th. Now, let's take a little time here and get into Zechariah, because during this writing of Haggai, Zechariah began his message, and it was in the eighth month. So we've seen events in the sixth month, the seventh month, and the ninth month so far, haven't we? Now, Zechariah introduces us to some things that will happen in the eighth month. That would be uh, November. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, so same year, undoubtedly, same year Haggai's talking about. Uh, 
He says, God has been sore displeased with your fathers, speaking of the people of old, but he is also speaking here of Worldwide Church of God and the heathen that came in that he mentions in Zechariah 1, which we read. And he says, don't be like them, repent, in, in, an ess- in essence. Now, in verse 7, he says, on the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month. So, 721, we have a warning, end of the feast, that we sure had better separate from the unclean. And then here in the eighth month, he warns us not to be like our fathers, but to obey and serve God. That comes right on the heels of the 721 warning. Then, he skips to the eleventh month. The eleventh month comes two months after the ninth month. 924 was December 31st, remember, of this year. So that would put the eleventh month into February, okay? We're about to come to the part that I'm not too fond of, if it's true. Because he says, on the 24th day, notice again the 24th, we saw that on the uh, 6th month, 8th month, we saw it on the ninth month, and here now in the 11th month, not the 8th, but the, uh, the ninth, And here in the 11th. And here is the prophecy about the horsemen and so on and the myrtle trees, which is typified by the church. Uh, but he goes on down to describe the 70 years ending, which we saw a little earlier today, and how God had been a little displeased and then became sorely displeased and blew it all apart. But right after that, he says in verse 10, or verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercy. said he would return to his people after 70 years with mercy. Uh, not, not immediately after 70, but here we're in the second year with preparations being made. <clears throat> My house shall be built in it, says the Eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth on Jerusalem. And then he says, Cry yet, say, say something else. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad. says there will be towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle in chapter 2, verse 4. Jerusalem will be built as towns without walls. Uh, so what he's, he's referring to that here. And he will yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem, but he hasn't yet. And here we are in the 11th month, 24th day. Then I lifted my eyes up and saw four horns, and I said to the angel to talk with me, What be these? And he answered, These are the horns, the powers, which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, uh, which have scattered, divided the church, Judah and Jerusalem, the church, spiritual Israel. And the Eternal showed me four carpenters. Now, that's the whole context here, is just the end-time church and the remnant that come with the two witnesses. It's not talking about anything else. That's what it's talking about. So when it talks about those who destroyed, it's talking about those who destroyed that which God was putting together as a foundation for the remnant to come to. can't be referring to anything else. The division that we have right here on this property, if you will. Then said I, what come these to do? And he said, these are the people, the powers, who have come to scatter spiritual Israel so that man did, no man did lift up his head. The shame, the embarrassment, where is God, why isn't God delivering them, all those things that we've read, showing that we would be abased and would be looked down upon. Okay? You didn't even lift your head up. You know, we're scattered. There's not much left of us. You know, what can we say? Jacob is small. Who will deliver him? Amos 7. And on and on. 
<laughs> so these four came to scatter, and there are four, essentially four leaders of the rebellion that has occurred right here. But these are come to scare them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. Now that's in the 11th month, 24th day, that that prophecy is given. Now I had hoped our enemies would be gone uh, before Passover or before Pentecost or shortly hereafter. But if this is the year that is the second year of Cyrus, and it does equate to that in the prophecies of Daniel and Jeremiah and so on, then it may not be until February till they're gone. The gathering might occur after Pentecost. They might then be told, we do have to build a temple. Let's clean ourselves up. Let's go to work. Then the blessings come in great abundance at the end of December. And our enemies are gone by sometime in February based on this, if it is equivalent to this year. Now, the nation, if these dates all be correct, has to be gone by uh, a month before a child, I mean, before 12 months, 11 months, a child can usually say daddy and mommy. So that would be the end of April uh, of 2019. The nation has to be gone. So our enemies may be tossed out at a time when all of these convolutions have already started to occur. The financial crash may have occurred, and the destruction of the nation may be very, very imminent by February, and our enemies then are purged out. Ezekiel says he'll purge the rebels, and they have to go out into the tribulation, as Jeremiah 11 says. So that's the part I didn't want. I didn't want them being around that long. So I thought, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I can't see how it doesn't fit. I don't see how all of this doesn't fit together. Now, if I'm wrong about it, we'll find out here probably beginning in about two weeks at Pentecost. And we'll also find out if we're counting Pentecost, right, if some important events occur at Pentecost. Because it'll be on the 17th when we're keeping it, or it'll be on the 24th when some think it is. But we'll know, will we not? if anything important happens on one of those two dates. So, I'm out of time, but I wanted to show you how the correlation of Haggai and Zechariah and the dates there fit uh, the end of the 430, the end of the 70, before the end of 65 years when Ephraim has to go away. And then if that is the case, these things have to start happening this summer and fall. So we'll soon know.